He was coming to save his people. Good news, the gospel about this Jesus who came to save us from our sins. Now bear with me for a couple of minutes. I want to introduce the book of Matthew to you because we're going to be parked here for a little while. And I want us to understand where we're coming from as we dive into the study from the book of Matthew. And so just a few few preliminary comments, introductory comments about the gospel of Matthew. First, I want you to note this down. Matthew is a biography. It's really a a biography. We could say that it is a first-hand account of the life of Christ from the perspective of a man, an apostle of Jesus Christ named Matthew. Of course, Matthew wrote under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so we know that the words that are in the Scripture came from God, but God used the tool, uh, God used the man, Matthew, to pen these words and communicate these words to us, and, but they are indeed God's words. And so Matthew is the first-hand account of the disciple Matthew of what he experienced from the life of Christ. It's interesting, there are four Gospels in the New Testament. And every one of the Gospels gives us a little bit of a different perspective about the life and ministry of Jesus. The first of the Gospels, as I said, is Matthew. And Matthew was primarily written to Jewish believers and presents Jesus as the Messiah King. Then you have the Gospel of Mark. And the Gospel of Mark was written primarily to Romans, and it presents Jesus as the suffering servant. An interesting concept for Romans. Then you turn to the Gospel of Luke. That's what's next in the Scripture. And in the Gospel of Luke, it's written primarily to Greeks who were very knowledgeable people. Luke is very detail-oriented in his Gospel. and Luke presents Jesus as the Son of Man. As a, uh, uh, as, as a person who came and lived among men to establish God's eternal work. And then the final of the four Gospels is the Gospel of John. Now, I'll be honest, John is my favorite. We preached through the book of John several years ago. Gospel of John, John wrote to the world. And John presents Jesus to us as the Son of God come in the flesh. And boy, what an what a important truth that is. And so you blend all of the Gospels together and no one Gospel gives us the full story. But God gave us four Gospels to give us the whole picture of everything He wanted us to know about the life and ministry of Jesus. And so we're in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew was an interesting character in the Scripture. He was a tax collector. He's one of those, what is that, 86,000 IRS agents? Okay. Um, He's one of those guys. Okay. Uh, He was known as a publican in the Scriptures. He was a traitor to his own people. They were people who were looked down on as being uh, inferior to all the rest of people and even very uh, superiorly sinful above the rest of people by the culture in that day. And this is that Matthew. But let me tell you something. When Matthew met Jesus, his life was transformed radically. He left the receipt of the custom where he was taking taxes and he forsook it all and he followed Jesus and he never stopped following Jesus until the end of his days. I find it interesting that you can read your Bible from cover to cover and you'll never actually find Matthew being, uh, being known to actually say anything. Never makes an actual statement in the scriptures. He's a silent witness about Jesus Christ and all that Jesus had to do and I think there's a message in that too. Because Matthew wasn't here to tell us about himself. Matthew was here to tell us about Jesus. By the way, that ought to be the anthem out of all of our lives. People are good about talking about themselves and singing their own praise, but give us some more people like Matthew who'd be willing to sing the praise of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. So Matthew's a biography. Here's the second thing I want you to see about Matthew. Matthew is a balanced book. Balanced. Now, 
I enjoy looking at these kinds of things. But the manner in which Matthew is structured is a literary piece of art. People even outside of uh, uh, the biblical realm have studied the book of Matthew just because of its unique construction. It is a beautiful piece of literature. It is divided into five unique sections along with a prologue and an epilogue or a beginning and an ending. And each section begins with a narrative account. And then it goes into a discourse or some of the teaching of Jesus Christ. And so you have the beginning, then you have a, a little bit of the story being told, and then some teaching, and a little more of the story told, and then some more teaching from Jesus, and so on and so forth. Five different sections like that in the book of Matthew. And boy, in the book of Matthew are some of the most beloved passages of Scripture in all of the Bible. We have the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew. We also have one of the most important passages of Scripture that talk about end times in the book of Matthew. And many of the parables that we love so much are found in the Gospel of Matthew. So it is a very balanced and beautiful book, and I think we're really going to enjoy studying it. A third preliminary truth I want you to see is this. Matthew is a bridge. It's a bridge. Hear me out on this. There's significance to the placement of Matthew in the canon of Scripture. It's not by happenstance or accident that Matthew became the first book of the New Testament. Most of you understand that the New Testament was a, a book of the, or the Old Testament was a, a, a part of the Bible that was talking primarily about Jews and written primarily to the Jewish people. And so it fits that Matthew be the first book of the New Testament because it serves as a bridge taking what was true about Hebrew people and introducing it not only to the Hebrews but to the rest of the world, the finished work of Jesus Christ. And I think it's interesting, look at Matthew chapter 1 and verse number 1. The Bible says here, the book, the generation of Jesus Christ. The word generation, we could, it could be translated Genesis. Book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. One person observed, just as the Old Testament begins with the book of Genesis, so the New Testament begins with the book of the Genesis of Jesus. Because guess what? In the New Testament, it's no longer alluding to Jesus in type and picture. In the New Testament, we've got the real thing. We get to meet Jesus Christ. Everything that all history has ever been pointing to was Jesus. And here we get to meet him in the New Testament. And so Matthew introduces this Jesus to us as the fulfillment of all Old Testament hopes and promises. That's who Matthew introduces us to here. And one of the key words that you'll find all throughout the Gospel of Matthew is the word fulfilled. And many, many different times we'll read in Matthew, and it was fulfilled, and it was fulfilled. Matthew quoted Old Testament Scripture more than anyone else um, did in, all of, in any of the Gospels because he was proving a point to the people who live in this world that everything that God said was going to happen in the Old Testament was fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And I think that is something that's so important for us to understand. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promised and all the Old Testament pointed to. By the way, you can mark this down. I believe it's in your notes too. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17. That's why Jesus himself told us, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but I am come to fulfill. Listen to me on this. This is important. Jesus came to do what the law could never do. He came to do 
what the law could never do. That is, declare us righteous before God. You say, what do you mean by that, preacher? Well, in the Old Testament, it was all do this, do this, do this, do this, or you, or God, or, or you aren't in God's favor. Right? In the New Testament, we're, we're introduced to this Jesus who says, you cannot be good enough. I'm going to die for your sins so that you can be forgiven and be made righteous before God. Jesus came to do something for us that we could never do through keeping the law, keeping all the rules. And that's the person that Matthew introduces us to in the scriptures. Romans chapter 8 and verse 3 says, For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemns sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. I thank God He gave us this bridge. This bridge of moving from the Old Testament system of bondage to the New Testament system of grace and liberty. And it was all made possible. The, the, the key that unlocked the door was Jesus Christ. And that's who Matthew has to tell us about. So Matthew is a bridge. The final introductory truth I see about Matthew, the book of Matthew is that Matthew is a broadcast. It's a broadcast. You see, in Matthew... One predominant message is resounded over and over and over again. You know what that is? Jesus is the Messiah King. He's the Messiah King. This is the one that Matthew wants to introduce us to. 22 different times uh, the word King is mentioned in the Gospel of Matthew. And boy, in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is known by many names. He first introduces him to us as Jesus. You know what the name Jesus means? It means Savior. So first, he introduces us to this one promise to come who is to be Savior. As he said, he shall save us from our sins. And then Matthew introduces us to this Jesus as the Christ. The word Christ means? means the anointed one, chosen one. We could put it this way. In the Greek, it literally means Messiah. That's who Jesus is. He's the Messiah. He was the one that God promised all the way from the Garden of Eden when man fell into sin until the day Jesus stepped on this earth. He was the one that God had ordained before the foundation of the world to come and save humanity from their sins. That's this Jesus. He's the Christ. Then there's another beautiful name that we love to think about this time of year especially given to Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, and that is Emmanuel. God with us. Matthew doesn't just tell us about this Jesus who came who's the king. It doesn't just tell us about this Jesus who came as Savior. But thankfully, Matthew also makes clear to us that this one Jesus who came is none other than God himself come to dwell among us. That's Jesus. And boy, Matthew's gospel is a broadcast to announce to the world who Jesus Christ really is. He was the promised Messiah King who had come into the earth. Now just think about it with me. You turn to the page before the Gospel of Matthew, most of you will have some kind of introductory page to the New Testament. And in that page, you know what's symbolized by that page? 400 years. Nothing. 400 years of silence. And all of a sudden, the silence is broken. A baby died in a manger. Jesus Christ entered into this earth. And boy, Matthew is the one who introduces us first to this one Jesus Christ who has come to fulfill everything the Old Testament had foretold. Matthew presents Jesus as the rightful king and promised Messiah who came to call people into his kingdom. 
He presents to us a Jesus who teaches the manner of his kingdom and came to establish the kingdom within those who believe in him through the cross and then commission those who believe in him to go out through the whole world and invite other people to enter the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus Christ. The summary, that's what the gospel of Matthew is all about. And I believe it is so fitting then. We turn to chapter 1 and begin studying this book of the Bible that the gospel of Matthew... This account begins with ancestry, Jesus. So let's look at Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse number 1. This isn't one of those passages of Scripture that, you, that we necessarily look forward to reading. Boy, it's an important, an important passage nonetheless, and I hope you'll see why in just a moment. Look at verse number 1 with me, chapter 1. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brethren. And Judas begot Phares and Zerah of Tamar. And Phares begot Ezram, and Ezram begot Aram, and Aram begot Amminadab. And Amminadab begot Naasson, and Naasson begot Salmon. And Salmon begot Boaz and Rahab uh, uh, of Rahab, and Boaz begot Obed of Ruth. And Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. And David the king begot Solomon of her that had been the wife of Urias. And Solomon begot Reboam, and Reboam begat Abiah, and Abiah begat Asa, and Asa begat Josaphat, or Jehoshaphat is how the Old Testament calls him, and Josaphat begat Joram, and Joram begat Ozias, and Ozias begat Joatham, and Joatham begat Achaz, and Achaz begat Ezekias, or Hezekiah is who that's talking about, and Ezekias begat Manassas, and Manassas begat Ammon, and Ammon begat Josias, and Josias begat Jeconias and his brethren about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconias begot Salathiel, and Salathiel begot Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel begot Abiad, and Abiad begot Eliakim, and Eliakim begot Azor, and Azor begot Sadduk, and Sadduk begot Achim, and Achim Eliad, and Eliad begot Eleazar, and Eleazar begot Matthan, and Matthan begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ." So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David until the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations. And from the carrying away into Babylon into Christ are 14 generations. Made it. Good job, everybody. <laughs> it just sounds like an intriguing way to begin a new chapter in history, doesn't it? Here's a bunch of names for you. Oh, it's not typically how you and I might begin this narrative in the Scripture, but it's how God chose to begin this new narrative in Scripture. And though it's curious to us, God has a reason for it. One person observed, not many men can go, not many men can go back through a list of progenitors containing some 50 names and covering some 1,500 years. Now, some of you think you can because you've been to Ancestry.com. Um, <laughs> And you found out that uh, your, your father was the king of England and all, all kinds of fun stuff, I'm sure. Um, I'm not mocking you if you like to do ancestry work, but even if you try to do that kind of thing, understand this. Most of us can't trace our lineage back beyond just a couple generations. Yet here we have someone whose ancestry was preserved and revealed to us here in the Scripture, and there is great significance for it. Because the type of person whose ancestry would be reserved or preserved is someone who is of royal bloodline. Indeed, as we shall see, that is who Jesus Christ was. 
And it's interesting, actually, that Jesus is revealed to be of the royal line of David. And the records of this royal line have been lost. They were lost in about AD 70 when Rome uh, burned the capital city of Jerusalem. And today, there is no way that the Jews could track who is the heir to the throne of the Hebrews. There's a reason for that. You don't need anybody else to sit on that throne. You've already got someone to sit on that throne. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's eternal. He's had no beginning of days and will have no end of days. And friend, that's the person that we're introduced to here. It's Jesus Christ, King of the world, and yes, the King of the Jews. And so this is who the Bible is introducing to us here. And there's a reason behind this genealogy being revealed. And God would not have just given us 17 verses in the Scripture that He just said, well, just ignore those and throw those out. No, He's got an important reason for why He put these in the Scripture for us, and we're going to focus in on what that reason is here in, just, uh, here, here in our discourse today. Understand this, Jesus is the King. He's the one tracking all the way back to Abraham and all the way back to David who has the rightful claim to the throne of Israel. And one day, God, all God's promises will be fulfilled in Jesus Christ coming again to this earth to establish that throne physically on this earth after the second coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus, when he came the first time, though he is king, he did not come how anyone would have expected a king to come. See, Jesus, the first time he came, he did not come to rule over man. He came to redeem man. Jesus told us in Luke chapter 9 and verse 56, For the Son of Man has come not to destroy men's lives, but to save men's lives. He wasn't come to beat, coming to beat us into submission, but to call us to salvation. That's why King Jesus came the first time. And King Jesus legislates on the basis of grace and not on the basis of law. In other words, He often offers to us what we don't deserve and we could never earn instead of giving us what we do deserve. By the way, I'm thankful for that, aren't you? He legislates in His kingdom on the basis of grace and not on the basis of law. John 1 and verse 17 says, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And so we have this lineage introducing us to this one who's the rightful king, Jesus. As you consider the list, one of the things that is very well portrayed all through the list that God's grace was on display throughout the entire history of the world leading up to the time that Jesus Christ came into this world. With the time we have remaining, I want us to focus in on four particular truths that we see demonstrated in this passage of Scripture. And I'm taking more of a logical approach than a chronological approach to this text of Scripture, so hang with me. The points are really easy. We're going to look at one, two, three, and four, okay? And you all understand that more in just a minute. First off, I want you to see this. I want you to notice one person. One person. Verse number one. Let's read the first part of the verse out loud together, okay? The book of the generation of Jesus Christ. All right, let's try it again. Some of you, you still need to wake up, okay? Let's try it again. Here we go. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ. The obvious focal point... The beginning of this passage of Scripture is Jesus. 
all about Jesus. This is a genealogy of Jesus. And the Bible says that this book is a record of the generation or the ancestry or the life of Jesus. Now it's important that we understand this at this juncture. This is not where Jesus' story began. It says it's the genesis of Jesus, but this is not where Jesus' story began. And oh, how important it is that we understand this fact. See, the Bible teaches us that Jesus is eternal. You know what that means? There's no beginning and he'll have no ending. You can't track, back, track uh, the, 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 the course of history back to a point where Jesus didn't exist. There was not a time that exists where Jesus was not already in existence. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 3 indicates that Jesus has neither beginning of days nor end of life. John chapter 1 and verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word. Now that's a reference to Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the same was in the beginning with God. That's Jesus. He's eternal. The Bible tells us in Revelation 1.8 that Jesus says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. And the beautiful mystery of Christmas lies particularly in the fact that Jesus, who never had a beginning, came into this earth, came down to this earth and appeared to men to have his beginning he came down and was born of the Virgin Mary. Like what, how Charles Spurgeon put it, he said, He who never began to be, eternally existed, began to be what he eternally was not, and continued to be what he eternally was. Just think about that for a while. You wanna, if you want to get your brain to hurt a little bit. It's hard for me to wrap my head around that. Well, that's good because we're talking about God. If you could understand him, he wouldn't be much of a God. That's who Jesus was when he came into this world. And you know, Jesus' arrival was the fulfillment of God's promise to come save this world. I want you to look at Matthew chapter 1, down at verse number 22. Notice what the Bible says in verse 22. It says, now all this was done that it might be what? There's that word. Fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Being interpreted as what, church? God with us. Jesus fulfilled everything that God had promised in the Old Testament. God had promised that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. God had promised that the Messiah would be born in a town called Bethlehem. God had promised many, many, many things in the Old Testament, all of which Jesus Christ fulfilled every one of them to the exact prophecy uh, to, the, to, the, to the exact specifics that were listed in the prophecies of the Old Testament. Everything that the Old Testament prophesied about Jesus, he fulfilled. And boy, it's a wonderful thing to consider. And I tell you this morning, this is a demonstration of grace. God giving us what we certainly don't deserve. And here it is. It is grace. The fact that God himself would step down from his heavenly throne and come down to this earth to save the likes of you and me. One person fills it all. Jesus is the fulfillment. I propose to you today, Jesus Christ is the only thing still that will bring fulfillment to your life. 
and try to find it in a lot of other things, especially this time of year, and your festivities and your family time and, and presents and in Christmas music. You can try to fill yourself up and yet still remain empty because there is only one thing that can truly fulfill you in this entire universe, and it is Jesus Christ. Colossians 2 and verse 9 says, And you are complete in Him. Boy, you can only find completion. You can only find true, eternal, everlasting fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So we see the moment that Jesus entered into this world changed the world forever. Changed the world forever. It's been said concerning Jesus that history is really just a record of His story. It's all about Jesus. Study history. One of the things you'll find is that literally the centerpiece of history is Jesus. Before the time of Christ, we date the events that took place in this world with B.C., before Christ. After Jesus Christ came, we date the events that took place in this world with the Latin phrase, Anno Domini, or A.D., which means in the year of our Lord. Put Jesus right in the center of all history because everything that happened before and everything that has happened after points us to Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. It's all about one person, and that one person is Jesus Christ. And can I say this? Ever Jesus Christ enters into your life, your life will never be the same either. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And this genealogy is recorded in the Scripture, not only so that you would know Jesus' past, so that you can ensure that you will be a part of Jesus' future. See, the truth of the matter is Jesus doesn't want the list of his ancestors to end here. The reason why Jesus came was to call many sons and daughters of God to believe in him so that they could be saved and become a part of the family of God. I like what the Bible says in John chapter 1 and verse 12. It says, but as many as receive him, Jesus... To them he gave the power to become what? The sons of God. You receive Jesus, you can become a part of this family tree that's being listed here. And the list goes on and on and on as new people come and trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. And so we see in this genealogy, the first truth, one person. Here's the second truth I want you to see, and that is two promises. Two promises. We see one person, but then we see two promises. Look at verse 1 and verse, uh, the end of verse 1. The Bible says, The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of who? David, David the son of Abraham. Son of David, the son of Abraham. Both of these, these two individuals are emphasized here. What's the significance? Well, to give you the summary of it, the reason why these two in particular are significant while they're mentioned twice in this genealogy, is because God made some particular promises to Abraham and to David. We often refer to them in theological terms as the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. Now, I have them listed in your notes. Look down at them with me really quickly, if you would. In Genesis chapter 12, notice God promised Abraham. He said, I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And so God promised to bless the descendants of Abraham, the Hebrew people. And by the way, this is one of the reasons why we ought to stand up for Israel still today as Americans. And uh, it's based on the promise of God right here, the covenant God made with Abraham. 
Moving on, in 2 Samuel chapter 17, we find the Davidic covenant, the promise God made to David. Here's what it says. God told David, In thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. And so when Jesus came through the line of Abraham and David, he fulfilled all that God had promised in these two covenants. God had promised Abraham that through your seed, through your descendants, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And guess what? We are through Jesus Christ. It's the fulfillment of that promise that God gave to Abraham all those many years before. And the same thing is true of David. He's the only true descendant to the throne of David. And remember, God promised David, hey, your throne will never have an end. It'll be an everlasting throne. And friend, that is fulfilled in Jesus, King Jesus, who eternally will sit on the throne as King of kings and Lord of lords. I like what the Bible says in Revelation. Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15. An angel declares, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. And He shall reign forever and ever Friend, there is only one true king who will sit on the throne throughout all of eternity, and that is King Jesus. Recently, I was watching, watching a clip on the internet about the coach of the Boston Celtics. Do we have any Boston fans in here today? Shame on you. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I actually really like your coach. Joe, Joe Mazzula, I believe, is his name. I have a little clip of Joe. Could we turn it up and play that real quickly here? Did you get a chance to meet with the royal family? And if not, how was it like having them there in the building? Jesus, Mary, and Joseph? <laughs> the prince and princess of Wales. Oh, no, I did not. I'm only familiar with one royal family. I don't know too much about that one. That's pretty good stuff, isn't it? I like what he had to say. I'm only familiar with one royal family. And friend... Uh, we understand this as Americans, I suppose more so, boy, even more so than that as Christians. We only bow before one king, and that's King Jesus. Boy, these two promises that we look at in this genealogy given to Abraham and David remind us of the fact that Jesus is king. And they also remind us of a simple truth. Listen, God keeps his word. God keeps his word. I like what the Bible says in Numbers chapter 23 and verse 19. It says, God is not a man that he should lie. Neither the Son of Man, that he should repent or change his mind. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? You can mark it down. When God says it, it's as good as done. You can stake your life. You can build your life on the promises of God. Because even if you can't see how it's going to come to pass, if you put your trust in the promise of God, it will always come to pass. God is good for his word. The Bible says in Hebrews 10, verse 23, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. Why? Because He is faithful, that promised. You may not always be faithful to your promises to Jesus, but Jesus will always be faithful to His promises to you and thank God for it. A person who promises, here's the third thing I want you to see, three periods, three eras, three uh, 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 eras of time. And we'll not take time to read verses 2 through 16 again, but let's summarize by looking at verse 17. You still with me? Say amen. The Bible says in verse 17, So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David into the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations. 
and from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. Now, as you, as you read through this genealogy, there are three distinct periods of history that become prominent. Now, as follows. The Bible says it's from Abraham to David. That's the first period. And then from David to Jeconiah, or the, 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 the generation that was carried away captive to Babylon. And then from Jeconiah to Jesus. Three different specific periods of history. And uh, those of you that know your Bible understand the first period of history we could consider to be the springtime of Israel's history. It was the time when God was raising up uh, uh, this, this new nation of people whom He has chosen to be His people. And it was the time of the patriarchs and the time of the judges. And all of these things were, were coming to pass for the people of Israel. It was a time period where, where Israel grew in power as they learned to trust God more and more. You move on to the second period that the Bible mentions here. That is the period of what we could consider Israel's summertime and fall and harvest a period of the kings of Israel from David all the way to Jeconiah. And boy, it was certainly a high point of Israel's history. But the problem was, as this time period went on and on, the people of Israel began to disobey God's word and defy God's, God's commands and fell into apostasy and idolatry, into moral, moral depravity, not too dissimilar from what we're seeing happen in America today, mind you. And that led to the third period of what we could say was Israel's winter time of history. Silent years. The, the years where Israel went into captivity and then they got to return to their land and then there are, there's nothing recorded in Scripture to us about many of the people who lived during this time period of history. And I find it interesting that the historical list of those who preceded Christ is presented here in great detail. Mind you, there are a couple names who are missing from the list, and I'm not sure why God chose not to put their names on the list, but suffice it to say, none of them were very good guys anyways. The, the, this, this list is presented to us of all Christ's predecessors, humanly speaking. On this list are godly men like Abraham, Isaac, Hezekiah, Josiah, some of the people we look at and we admire, David from the Old Testament. On this list are also very wicked men, Rehoboam. Uh, Manasseh, and some of the others that were on this list, not good guys. Not ones that you'd think that Christ would want to put on a list of people who preceded him before he came in this world. But what I find prominent here in this genealogy is that God did not try to hide the failures of those who are listed in this genealogy. These three eras of history are given, here, given us here as a reminder that even the best efforts of man will always fall short of saving them. Listen to me. Man will fail you. Jesus never will. Reminded of that as we study this passage of Scripture, I find it interesting in verse 17, there's a number Matthew pulls out. It's got to be significant because he mentions it three times. What's the number? 14. Well, what's so significant about the number 14? Well, here's what the number 14 represents. The number 14 represents deliverance, salvation number of deliverance. It was on the 14th day of the month that God made his promise to Abraham between the sacrifices. It was on the 14th day of the month that the Passover was instituted for the people of Israel. And when God said, when I see the blood, I'll pass over you, I'll deliver you. It was on the 14th day of the month, Jesus Christ himself was hung on a cross to be crucified for our sin. 
That's what's significant about the number 14. Seven is a number of completion or perfection. Put seven and seven together, what do you got? Double perfection. Reminds us of what Jesus said from the cross. It is what? Finished. Double perfection. That's what the number 14 has to teach us. And see, the truth is, as you look at the, re at the redemptive story, as you look at the lineage of Jesus Christ, it points us to a simple fact that man could never save himself. And so it had to come in the fullness of time when Jesus came into this world. Jesus came to do what man could never do. Jesus came to deliver us from our sin. We see these three periods remind us of the saving deliverance that Jesus Christ alone could bring to us. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 says, For all have sinned, come short of the glory of God. And listen, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Thank God, though we've all fallen short, nobody on this list could save us. It was one, the final one came down to this earth, Jesus Christ, and He can save us. He can deliver us, and thank God for that. One person, Jesus. Hey, two promises, three periods. Here's the final thing I want you to see. Four prodigals. Four prodigals. I find it interesting, and for sake of time, I'm just going to read this very quickly. Verses 3 through 6, look at it with me here. If you're in the habit of circling names in your Bible, you may want to do this if you haven't already. Verse 3 Bible says, and Judas begot Pharaoh and Zerah, Tamar. That's the first name right there. And Pharaoh begot Ezram, and Ezram begot Aram, and Aram begot Abinadab, and Abinadab begot Naasan, and Naasan begot Salmon, and Salmon begot Boaz of Rahab, or Rachab is what it looks like there. Circle that one next. Boaz begot Obed of who? Ruth. Thank you, Berta. She's the only one who said it. Circle that one next. Ruth. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king, and David the king begot Solomon of, and her name's not listed, but her, the fourth person, of her that had been the wife of Urias. Now, if you know who that is, why don't you say it out loud? Who is it? Bathsheba. Her name, if you want to write that in the margin. Say, how do I spell that? Come see me after the service. I'll help you, okay? Bathsheba. That's who it's talking about here. Four prodigals. Four outcasts. It was a very uncommon thing. And you read through the genealogies in the Old Testament too, if you have spare time. You read through those genealogies, you'll find that it's very uncommon in Hebrew, Hebrew culture to list the name of the women because the lines ran through the men. The ancestry ran through the men. And yet here in the genealogy of Jesus Christ himself, we find that there are four different women who are mentioned here in the scripture. And God has great reason for why he listed them here in the scripture. And I believe there are many reasons for this. But suffice it to say that one of them most certainly is to display the grace of God. Those who are considered to be outcasts. We don't have a lot of time to park here. Many of you I know know the story of these individuals, but just consider who these women are. Special women in the scripture. Tamar married the, the son of Judah. That son died and she was promised to be given another one of Judah's sons so that she could raise up an heir to the family. When Judah did not keep his word, Tamar was forced into a position. She had to deceive her father-in-law and ended up conceiving a child with her father-in-law, not knowing about it, thinking that she was a prostitute had twins, Perez and Zerah. That's not a very fun story, I know. I'm telling you, they're a little bit of outcasts in the history of Israel. 
move on to Rahab, who is Rahab. Well, Rahab was a prostitute in the city of Jericho who took in the two spies who came to spy out the city of Jericho, and she ended up putting her faith in Jehovah God and saved her family. Boy, she became a part of not just the people of Israel, but the very line of Jesus Christ himself. Ruth. Oh, I love Ruth. Ruth was. Ruth wasn't an Israelite. She was a Moabite. She was someone who was shunned, someone the Israelites were not supposed to have anything to do with. But she, is, she married an Israelite man, um, and, and that man ended up dying, and she ended up moving back with her mother-in-law, of all people, to the nation of Israel. While she was there, she maintained her faith in Jehovah God, though she was an outcast. God allowed her to meet Boaz and marry Boaz, and boy, she became a part of the line of Christ. Amazing stories. Bathsheba. Bathsheba was the woman that committed adultery with David, were equally at fault. And then she conspired with David to have her, her husband killed. Conceived the child, lost the child, but she became a part of the line of Jesus Christ in spite of her failures. It's not just that there are four women who are listed here in the scripture, because the truth of the matter is, if you want to go down the line, we could certainly list all the sins of the rest of the men on the list too. Don't get me wrong. It'd be a long list. These women are put particularly into the scripture because they demonstrate to us that God is not ashamed to welcome outcasts into his family. Because what makes us accepted by God is not our goodness, it's his goodness. What makes us a part of the family of God is not our merit, his merit, his grace. And I'm so glad that God deals with us in the currency of grace. God chose these women. God chose these men to be a part of his lineage in spite of their prodigal status, in spite of their, their failures. I'm so glad to know that where sin abounded, the Bible says grace did much more abound. I'm here to tell you today, and don't miss this because we're almost done. Listen to me. In God's grace is still able, I don't care what you've done, he is still able to make you part of his story. Well, God wouldn't want somebody like me to be on a list like this. I've not lived a very good life. Well, friend, you're in good company if that's you today. None of us have. In his grace, God still welcomes outcasts like you and like me to be a part of his family to be a part of his redemptive story. Jesus did not come to receive perfect people into his kingdom. On the contrary, he knows we're not perfect. And so he came to receive imperfect people made perfect through trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's what Jesus came to do. Jesus said in Luke 5 and verse 31, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You, my friend, are not too far gone for God to be able to save you. You are not too far gone for God to be able to use you for His purposes. God is an expert at taking our messes, making a masterpiece out of them for His glory. Romans 8.28 reminds us, and we know that all things work together for good to them who love God, them who are the called according to His purpose. And as I read through this list of names, people, some who did some good things, but most who didn't, reminded of the fact that God can use any one of us we'd be willing to trust him if we'd be willing to let him like what one lady said she said if you think you've blown god's plan for your life comfort in the fact that you my friend are not that powerful i thought that was so good that's not finished with you yet friend the truth of the matter is if you have never come to faith in jesus christ as your savior 
Today, purpose of Christmas is to introduce you to this one Jesus who came to save you from your sin and to invite you to become a part of his redemption story. To invite you to become a part of his family. To invite you to write your name down as one of the, one of the, one of the people who are on the lineage of Jesus Christ, a son or daughter of God. And if there has never come a day in your life when you have trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, friend, the invitation for you today is to trust Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sin, to become a part of the family of God. Those of us that know Christ as our Savior, some reminders for us of the fact that in spite of our failures and frustrations, God still chooses to use people like us. Friend, you've been dropping the ball lately. You can still take heart. God can do, still do something with someone like you. You just need to turn back to the Lord. Friend, the truth of the matter is, as we study this genealogy here, what a great blessing it is to know that God works with us on the basis of grace, not on our own merit, on His giving us something that we don't deserve and we could never earn. And every time you read this genealogy, I want you to be reminded of the fact we serve a gracious God. Let me have everybody bow your head and close your eyes with me. Heads are bowed, our eyes are closed.